Got a <clears throat> bunch of notes today, uh, many of them on the same theme and some in interviews. Uh, whenever it comes to anatta and emptiness, it just creates, I wish the Buddha hadn't invented that <laughs> idea. This makes our life very difficult. Um, especially there are a number of you, a fair number of you are, are rather new. And so questions come up if, if everything is empty or there's no self, then who's observing and, you, you know, some of the questions. I, I would like to go into that a little. Um, if this subject is not clear to you and if after my few remarks it doesn't get clearer, uh, don't make it into a problem because um, you have to live with a while. In one sense, it's a pretty simple idea, but sometimes the people who are most, we have to watch most carefully, are people who say, oh yeah, no, I got it, I really understand. Um, and certainly from a teaching point of view, it's definitely a challenge. Actually, when I first started to teach, I would always, at every retreat, make sure that I talked about anatta and emptiness. I felt that I was duty-bound to do it. It was really necessary, which I still think it is. And then uh, after a few years, someone who had been coming to not only here but uh, retreats and classes in Cambridge <coughs> said, you know, in the last few years, you, you haven't talked so much about anatta and emptiness. You used to talk about it a lot more. And I stopped and I realized, that's right. Uh, I had stopped, I sort of slowly but surely, um, without fully realizing it, had drifted away from it and was teaching everything else but not that. And when I looked into it, I found the answer or as close as I could come to it, it's a similar phenomenon that happened to an MIT professor some years ago. This was a professor of psychology, uh, psycho and uh, he was teaching uh, behavioral psychology, and when, when he was teaching the MIT students that, you know, if you, do, if you reward a certain behavior, then, uh, then uh, the subject emits more of that behavior, and if you punish it, then uh, the subject does less of that. Okay, and so went on and on about that and these students being rather uh, mischievous, one day what they did was he was a pacer. He would like pace back and forth in front of the class. And so every time he went to one side of the room, they had all agreed on this, the students, people would just look with incredible interest and start writing everything that he said down. <laughs> <laughs> And every time he would go to the other side of the room, they would just start uh, yawning and getting distracted, drop their pencils, and start whispering to each other. And before long, he was backed into the wall. You know, he just, he just couldn't move. He was just completely where he was getting rewarded. And I think what happened, I got so tired of looking at these furrowed brows, you know. then who gets enlightened if there's nobody there, then who's teaching, you know, just, so I come back and it's, it hasn't changed, it's still difficult, so. But some of the questions uh, had to do with, let's say, the existence of a soul, is this teaching saying that there is no soul? Or what kind of a core do we have? Uh, I don't want to get into heavy theology. Uh, I think you could say uh, that the Buddha could allow for, you know, after hearing, let's say, what is uh, defined as a soul, it could be allowed for that. And there could be an allowance saying, yes, sure, there could be a soul. as some very, very deep, uh, and you could say profound psychic phenomena, some um, chief feature of a person, something quite strong. But if you were to suggest that it was uh, permanent, and that it was something like an eternal soul, then I think then it would not fit. Uh, it wouldn't fit this teaching. However, here's a very important point uh, 
for those of you who are new and for the people who have been here for a while to remember, be reminded of. Uh, this is not about beliefs. It's not about getting you to adhere to a belief and then so then you say, I'm a believer, agreeing, and then you feel secure in that belief and people who are not believers are outside the pale. Um, it's not about beliefs at all. I mean, you need a certain amount of faith or confidence just to get started. But essentially, the challenge is to probe into your own mind. It doesn't matter what, you know, whether I think there's a soul or not. And finally, even if it doesn't matter what the, whether the Buddha thinks so or not, unless you're intimidated and think that you have to conform, thinking that everyone here believes, well, at IMS, no one believes in a soul, and I really like it there. Uh, it's just a wonderful place, nice people. I better not believe in a soul when I come up here, either consciously or little by little, just to fit in. And when we, if it's said in a talk that your head nods and you feel a kind of security, that's not what it's about. Uh, that would be just as bad. Total disbelief would be the same thing as total belief. So I'm afraid, uh, as we say, in, the ball is in your court, whoever asked the question. A few people did. Um, see if you can find something that's permanent. Remember what was said last night is that if you probe deeply into the mind uh, to find out where you are, you'll find it's ungraspable. In uh, Korean Buddhism, they use an image. It's like trying to find someone on a deserted island. That is, you think someone's there. There's no one there. And you search and search and search. And it takes you quite a lot while after you've combed the whole line. Finally, you realize there is no one here. Or maybe someone told you that there is no one here. But the value is finding out for yourself. Uh, so that there could be something very, very deep and profound and wonderful, if you want to psychologically call it a soul. After all, it depends on how you define it. Um, in terms of, this came up in a number of the notes, something like, well then, who's doing the observing? Uh, and finally, who are we? Here again, even within Buddhism, there are different models and different maps to try to to account for this, and they are they're different. And you know, some of us spend a lot of time trying to reconcile them or just agree that these are different angles, different ways of looking at things. The one I'm most comfortable with, uh, which fits my experience to the degree to which my own um, research uh, has helped me understand, is that finally you'll find that you are awareness itself. That's who you are. You are awareness. Um, we've been talking about intimacy and intimacy of practice and when you're sitting sometimes and maybe you've experienced this and maybe you haven't but I'll use a phrase when you really are intimate with yourself there's not an inch of separation not even a millionth of an inch separation between you and you now again the language is going to confuse you well who is, I thought there's no one so how could there be you and you but I have to, it's evocative, just let the words do something like that for you, I hope. Um, awareness is not mindfulness. You can, the way I'm using it now, awareness, uh, mindfulness is something you can practice. Now we use the terms interchangeably, so that creates a problem. But there's one way of using awareness, and of course mindfulness uh, has something to do with it naturally, but mindfulness is something that you can practice. Awareness, as I'm, as I'm using it, is something that is effortless, you come upon. And finally, what the Buddha is saying is that you are the knowing. Each one of us is the knowing. Knowing here not meaning intellectual or cognitive. Okay. Um, empty doesn't mean uh, vacuous or non-existent. Uh, IMS is empty even though we're all here. It's empty in the sense of it's put together, uh, it doesn't have an intrinsic reality. It doesn't have, um, intrinsic is as good a word as I can come up with right now, an enduring intrinsic core. This place was once uh, a kind of mansion. Then it was a Catholic seminary. 
And now it's a Buddhist, you know, it's been made over each time, of course. I think that was the ballroom out there, the walking room. I'm not sure if I remember the tour when we first came here. Uh, what will it be next? Cinema one, two, three, and four. I don't know. <laughs> but one thing you can be certain of, it's not going to be here forever. Anyone want to bet? Because we won't be here to collect, but uh, everything, so that it's put together by a certain set of conditions. The conditions are a certain number of uh, mischievous, disillusioned uh, Westerners in the 60s going off to Asia, coming back with a teaching, uh, this place being available for not very, really very much money, all kinds, more conditions than we can ever account for. And so here it is. This is IMS. Now, if because something is empty or because it lacks self, doesn't mean it's worthless. In fact, you could say it's all the more precious. Right? Just because your children are empty and impermanent doesn't mean they're worthless. You know, so don't let's get confused. It may be that the English we use sometimes void is used. I think that I don't like that term instead of emptiness. Um, so what it's pointing to is that uh, things come together because of causes and conditions. So they do exist, but their existence is dependent on those causes and conditions. And so it, it's not that it's not there or here, it is, but it's here in a, way, a certain way. And we are here, but we're not quite here in the way in which we think we are. Let's see if I can um, make that a little clearer. I was thinking that perhaps one thing that might help make this all a little bit more concrete uh, would be to, um, let me speak a little bit about the difference between self-images, self-knowledge, and self-knowing. That's the way, the way I'll be using the term, so, you know, of course you might see it. Self-knowledge and self-knowing can be used in a way that sounds synonymous. But Let's just say self-knowledge is, as I'm using it, is information that you accumulate about yourself. Now, that information may come from looking. It may come from uh, information that parents and psychotherapists have given you. Somewhere or another, you've accumulated more and more information. It could be your big, fat book of insights after this retreat. We know some of you are sneaking, doing that. You know, no writing on this retreat. <laughs> We have these cameras in your room. You didn't know that. <laughs> okay. So, uh, not that that doesn't have value. It, of course, it has some value, but it's accumulative. So that, from the self-knowing is non-accumulative. Self-knowing is just in this moment, you're seeing the way it is, and then it's dated. It's over with. It's archaic. It's useless. It's an impediment because you will then be seeing the next moment through your accumulations, the authority of your accumulations. Whereas what we're trying to develop is a freshness from moment to moment. That kind of knowing is what we're developing, self-knowing. Where in that moment you're seeing something about yourself. Now, we slip in and out of all these things, and uh, a lot of what, when we start talking about our story, it's obviously self-knowledge means we have a story, we've, we've created a scenario and a resume, and um, we're able to, at the drop of a hat sometimes, you know, just give it to someone. Okay. And as helpful as that is, that's not, that's not what this is. Self-images are part of that. Now, a self-image, let's say, is something that comes up. We, we have it. And it's something that you can actually practice with. I've seen some very, uh, I've worked with it a lot, and I've encourage some people to use it. It's not for everyone. By self-image, I mean uh, we have conclusions about ourselves and images. Some of these images are. They're like pictures. They're like photographs. And they're in the mind. Now, the, the problem uh, that we run up against is that what we do is we turn ourselves into objects. The mind makes up who it is, and th these are just objects, they're subtle ones in the mind, but they're external. In other words, that awareness, what awareness does is you keep seeing that awareness can be, be aware of this, of this, of this. Finally, you saw yourself off 
there's no limb to stand on, and you realize there's nothing left. Since everything else is passing scenery, then what is left? And what's left is there's something that knows. So the practice, of course, is, and I think we'll try to move in, in that direction in a, in a couple of moments. Uh, Self-images cause a, an immense amount of suffering, immense. Uh, working with somebody who has uh, serious um, problems, bodily problems, uh, seriously disabled in Cambridge. And I've learned a lot, and in, in our exchanges, uh, I think we both have learned a lot, and self-images have been very, very helpful. At first, typically, for a lot of people, uh, negative self-images, we've accumulated conclusions, verbal and otherwise, from our parents, from the school system, from who knows what. People look at us and talk about us a certain way, we believe it, and then we incorporate it. And then for the rest of it, we don't realize we're walking around thinking that we are that construct. Okay. So typically in, in uh, Dharma work, we all arrive with a fair amount of negativity. And so then, uh, and this is now in the culture a lot, uh, what it seems sensible is to replace a negative self-image with a positive one, or low self-esteem with high self-esteem. And this was happening to this person. And then the question becomes, okay, now you've got some uh, positive self-images. Uh, is this, can you rest here? Of course not, it's exhausting. You've got to keep maintaining them. You've got to keep protecting them. People don't always see it the way, the way you see it or want to see it. It's kind of a lifetime struggle. And finally, you realize that no self-images are really, really give the security that we think they do. They give us a kind of security. But it turns out that it causes much more suffering than it's worth. Now, here, and there were a few notes on this, if there's no one there, that is, let's say, uh, if as part of your practice, whenever a self-image comes up, just see it. Don't try to demolish it. Don't try to bring it up. Don't, you don't have to invite it up. Just if it comes, just see it. And f see what it is. It's just an image. It would be like, uh, you know, the, uh, your graduation picture from some school somewhere. You know, it's uh, usually um, fixed up a little bit, right? Your cheeks are nice and rosy. And, uh, and it's in someone's wallet or it's on the piano. And it's just frozen. It's a flash in time of of you, and it's usually flattering. It's supposed to be anyway. Now, uh, it's, it's an image. I'm not saying it's worthless, but we tend to identify with it. Or when I was growing up, I don't think I do it anymore, when you go to a movie theater, they would have four or five scenes from the movie to help you make up your mind whether you want to go in. And it was so misleading. You know, they would pick exactly the, the images, of, you know, a man doing it with a woman. You know, you can imagine what it was. And then you go in, and maybe that whole thing took about three seconds, and then the rest of it was, God only knows what was going on there. It was a different movie altogether. Uh, these are images. They, they, they are frozen. They're just a, a fraction of something, a fragment. How could it be who we are? Moreover, they come and they go, and they're inconsistent. They're contradictory. We use them up, then we get a new one. Uh, so in the, in the practice, as you're sitting and breathing in and breathing out, when they come, there's no problem. We're not at war with them. Get to know them. First of all, see that they arise and pass away. Uh, are they solid? Also, begin to see. Don't believe me. See if it causes suffering. There is the security, of course. I would say pseudo-security of developing this image. And then, uh, in some ways, it keeps you from looking at yourself, at certain aspects of yourself. And if you're serious about self-knowing, if you are, are really on a journey of, of who am I, this journey is that, uh, before this is over, all your cherished self-images will get smashed. And sometimes it's very painful, but ultimately it's quite liberating. It is such a relief to put that burden down uh, of what we're carrying around as to who we think we are, we should be, 
the negative and the positive. Right now, I'm mainly talking about positive. Okay. Um, well, if all these self-images fall away, then what's happening? It's a little frightening, just the thought of it. Does anyone have any fear? Often people will feel afraid, even to think the thought of it. What I'd like to uh, get into tonight is silence. I'd like to talk about silence. Uh, over the years, in my own practice, and in really uh, listening to and talking with and watching really quite a few other people's practices, um, I realize, uh, in a sense, we have a cultural handicap in regard to silence. Uh, it's extremely unimportant to us. We have very little experience with it. And what silence we are concerned about is relatively trivial. And so it's no wonder that we underestimate what, what silence is. Now, I'm not just talking about a breather or a break. I think you recall, at some point, I think I mentioned one, one phrase, one way of talking about liberation is called the great silence. Enlightenment or liberation is called the great silence. So you can understand that it's not a small thing. And we're cycling around on that frontier, that edge, close to it. Uh, I think often terrified of it. Or way before that, we don't even know it's anything that's worth experiencing or being in. Not really, based on how we live. So let's start out. I'm going to be brief about the starting point, because I think once I suggest some of this, you'll see you all know it very well. To begin with, um, our life is important, isn't it? I mean, life is here to be lived. I can't think of anything that I trust more than that. It, it's, here it seems obvious. Uh, we often don't live it. We don't live it fully, but it's here to be lived. And then the question becomes, well, okay, well, what do you mean? What is life? And what we equate with life are what? Verbalization. We have very, very deep uh, fixation on that, on words. Tremendously deep. Talking, it's uh, imprinted in consciousness very, very deeply in us. Talking, writing, reading, computers now. Uh, words are something that's extraordinarily important to us. The human race, out of its genius, has created these words just out of sound, kind of engineered the, uh, these, the capacity to make sound into these things we call words and all the different languages. It's an amazing accomplishment. I'm not in any way demeaning it. But that we value that. We value thoughts and words and all the things that come out of it. We value doing things, right? Uh, if we take something and move it from here to there, or pile, pile it up higher, or find a, a newer way of shaping it, or uh, create new equipment, technology is extraordinary. So there's uh, verbalization of all different kinds, and there's action, doing, creating, making. And our culture is very good at it. We're extremely good at it. I would say so good at it that we, you could use the word opulent. I mean, we're, we're opulent, and I would say inwardly, we're paupers. That may sound harsh, but I think that's why we're here. We're poverty-stricken. We're starved. Or we're parched. Our throats are parched. We want something, some, something uh, juicier. Uh, no matter how great a computer is, there's a limit to what you can do. And the internet is not going to cure it for us, believe me. It's just going to give us more information. And now we're going to, I just heard someone say, yes, I had a conversation on internet with a mountain climber in Siberia. You know, I say, great, but how are you with your wife? You know, I, well, we haven't spoken in the last two years, but, but I'm real great with mountain climbers in Siberia, as long as they stay on the internet. If he came and knocked on my door and said, hey, here I am, I'd get all uptight. You know, like, well, maybe he wants to move in. What does he want here? He's from Siberia.
and in, in continuity with what, what was being said last, last evening. Remember, uh, the Buddha is saying, under no conditions attached to anything whatsoever as being me or mine. That is, because it's, it's empty of a core, uh, empty of an enduring self, of an autonomous self. But much of that action that I'm talking about, that we do think we equate it with life, is under the influence of me or mine. We're doing so much, most of what we're doing, we're doing it, uh, me and mine in operation, in action. Me and mine building this, getting that, becoming this, and so forth. I don't, I don't think I have to detail all of that. Silence isn't too much a part of this except sort of to take a break. Like, some, I'm small, I'm just thinking of little, I was trying to grope for, I was groping for ordinary examples. I know that sometimes, uh, you know, refrigerators rumble and then suddenly it stops. And, oh, that's nice. It feels really nice. And we all appreciate quiet sometimes, or we'll go to special places for it to be quiet, like here. That's external silence, and it's a relief, and it can be very nice, and uh, we all appreciate that. And if we've been talking too long, sometimes we say, I have to take a break, I just want to shut up for a while, and just go to my room and relax. But typically, if we go to our room, we're writing a letter, or reading a book, watching TV. So that's what we think of as silence. Now, what I want to suggest is that there's a dimension called silence, which is unfathomable. That's what spiritual life is about, at least this version of it. That's what Dharma is about. In, and in a sense, in back of all this commotion, there's this vast silence. And it's also, of course, accompanied by space. Unlimited space, endless dimension, silence and space. We're psychonauts, whether you know it or not. But our orbit is an inner orbit. You've begun the journey. I don't know if you know that. You're starting to explore inner reality. Of course, finally, that, that split, inner and outer, breaks down. It's, it doesn't apply at all. But for right now, it's very helpful because most of us are pretty good about outer reality and we don't know very much about inner reality. So I'm just going to make a few statements that may sound outrageous, but the accumulated contribution of civilization, all the languages, culture, refinement, is relatively small compared to what's in back of it. And Dharma is opening up to what is before all of this. It's to what is, what is before culture, prior to culture, before thinking, it's sometimes called. You know, it's not that Dharma practice is to get to silence so that we now stop doing anything, building anything, uh, just, oh yeah, that's all a total waste of time, smash our computers. And it's not saying that at all, but what, it, what is being said is, because what I, if we have time tonight, what I want to suggest is, of course, uh, in certain ways, the fruit of Dharma practice is silence and action. You can get pretty good at t getting into silence for extended periods of time on the cushion. And then the real challenge becomes, can, can silence go into action? And of course, that's uh, a vital part of, our, of Dharma practice. Um, what to do about, uh, first of all, to begin with, there, for some of us, I would say we're not typical. The fact that you're willing to come here knowingly, you know, voluntarily, <laughs> realizing that you're going to be quiet for this long period of time. And I know some of the new ones, it is, it's much more than you thought it would be, right? It's, uh, uh, but obviously, you're not typical of the culture. But for most people, uh, we, don't, we don't equate silence as one thing that is actually uh, a dimension of life. And for some beings who have lived, probably always, it's been a primary dimension of life. They've lived from the silence. And from that silence have moved into action. But please remember, silence is, again, not a not very helpful word because it sounds like, well, yeah, it's okay. It sounds like the absence of doing worthwhile things. 
because what we've equated life with is verbalization and so forth. So assuming that you're starting to edge in this direction, but at the beginning, we only know what we know, and we have very strong conditionings. We have uh, our whole past, the whole heritage is in us, and it's uh, something that we have identified with and used, like language and so forth. So how can we weaken that? How can, not eliminate it, no one is against language or knowledge, knowledge here meaning the use of it, not at all. But if it's true that there's a vast richness, a dimension that's virtually untapped for most of us, that awaits us, uh, and we can't get to it because the uh, addiction to, to thinking, for example, thinking and doing is so powerful that we never even get near it. We need help. Uh, the first help I got was from a teacher who I, to this day, I'm grateful almost every day to what I learned from him. It was a Korean Zen master, and uh, we were heading to Korea. I was, I was about to spend a year there practicing in a monastery, and we were fl on the plane heading for uh, Japan first and then Korea, and I was sitting next to him on the plane, and I started, I pulled out a, a big, big sack, small sack, carry-on sack full of books all kinds of juicy Dharma books. And so he looked at me and said, what's that? My name was Byonjo. I mean, I had a Dharma name then. Uh, and I said, oh, these are some books I'm taking with me. And he said, no, you mean this whole year? You're going to, you know, no, no reading at all. I said, what? <laughs> and he says, that's your problem. You merely know everything. I was a professor for 10 years uh, with an intellectual bent, and it was, I thought he was kidding, but he really meant business, so I, I gave him my word. I said I wouldn't read a book for 10 years. For 10 years, no. <laughs> no, that's bragging, man. Uh, for that year. And I did. And for a Jewish intellectual from New York, you can imagine, it was like going cold turkey. It's like uh, very, very difficult, very difficult. There were times I was reading ketchup bottles, you know, just be because it was in English. You know, citric acid, tomato. <laughs> it was really fascinating because <laughs> it was words. Uh, or anyway. But it was very, very helpful. I mean, I got over, there was a certain period that was really, uh, I imagine, like what it's like to come off alcohol or drugs. Uh, it was excruciating. And then it was wonderful just uh, to just be. And when I, now I read, of course, but it's very different. It's never been the same. It's much lighter and freer. Other things that can happen to help, so that places like this, we suggest you not read. You know, you're moving in the direction of silence, whether you know it or not. Externally, you've stopped. That's just the bare beginning. That's creating a safe haven where we at least stop talking. That's a beginning. And then we're learning how to sit silently. But you know we're not, we can all be sitting here and the hall can be very, very silent. And inside, it can be a storm raging, you know, verbally. So there are many levels of this. Um, what, the method we're using, oh, before I get to that, you know, sometimes what can help is uh, sometimes thought, in other words, you, the, all this is is thought too, I mean, this is just blah, blah, blah coming from me and you're hearing it in thought, but sometimes thought can be heard these thoughts that are coming from me can be heard by your mind in such a way that thought, as an act of intelligence, can come to realize its own limitations and can actually kind of grasp that what is being said is true. It sort of has more faith and realize, oh, maybe I, it itself will weaken a little or loosen up a little bit and allow for the possibility uh, of not being so dominant and of not being... Uh, that given have so much authority over us. Uh, so that discussion and trying to understand or reflect on the nature of thought can be helpful.
very helpful, at least it has been for me. But to bring it to what, to the practice we're doing, let's say in choiceless awareness, um, what we're attempting to accomplish there, many things, but one thing that can happen in regard to this, to what we're talking about, is we're learning to relax, to sit with the breathing, and if you recall the instructions, just uh, let everything come and go freely. Now at the beginning, we're not, we're not really doing choiceless awareness. We're approximating it, we're simulating it. it. True choiceless awareness is effortless, and even the breath would not be privileged. You would just sit, and there'd be nothing in particular that you're supposed to attend to. We're using the breath to kind of help us get there. At a certain point, quite naturally, it won't be more or less important than anything else. It'll just be what's there. Of course, it's always there. So in that sense, it, it remains somewhat unique. But in real choiceless awareness is effortless. Finally, what we're doing is we're letting the mind roam freely, right? Because we have no agenda, no agenda at all. Uh, we have no, we're not supposed to be any place in particular. Now, probably most of us, or perhaps all of us, are still using some will, directing our attention to this and directing our attention to that. But the instructions are to come to rest, let's say tentatively in the breath, and eventually come to rest in awareness, and let life come to you. It's not that we're reaching out for experiences. We're present. Ideally, we have a undivided presence and we're sitting in a state of receptivity. And this art is an art that takes, uh, it takes time to refine. The art of doing absolutely nothing. No direction, going nowhere, no motives. Just being sensitive. Now what happens is the mind starts to roam about and we view it in a friendly way. Now what can happen if you can get into the swing of this, if you can allow the mind, by the mind I mean every, whatever comes up, Will you just allow it, just let it happen? It uh, exhausts itself in a certain sense. It exhausts its momentum. Remember, the momentum is sort of our whole heritage, our, ent our entire inheritance of thoughts and motives and memories, worries, fears, you know, all that stuff that's cooking, me and mine. And if you just leave it alone, what happens is uh, of course, the ego hates this because what's happening is it's being decentralized. Every time you aim your attention, who do you think's doing that? I'm aiming my awareness at something. I'm directing my mindfulness at this. Well, to begin with, it's probably, we have to. But that's what I meant by when it becomes effortless. Then the ego is not getting much practice there because what's happening is you're just letting it all happen. This may be a little ahead of your practice, I know. Uh, it's okay, as long as you don't make it into a problem. Now it's the new thing you have to strive for, the new thing to hit yourself over the head that you're not good at, etc., etc. But you're going to do it anyway, and it's important that at least some seeds be planted. Okay. So out of this very gentle, relaxed awareness, with a friendly attitude towards whatever turns up, and as you know, we're learning how to do that because we're not friendly to everything that turns up. We have very strong uh, likes and dislikes and fears and so forth. But that's what we're learning. We're learning how to, whatever is there, to let it be there just because it is there. That's the only reason. It's there. It's our life in that moment. We don't need any other justification. What tends to happen is thought goes into abeyance. And it goes into abeyance Gently, gracefully, peacefully, without a struggle, without any bloodshed, no struggle. In fact, you can't struggle because silence is very, very shy. And if you want to get quiet, want to get to silence, a silence, a silence would just hide under a rock somewhere. It's very, very shy. So you can't reach it by the intellect. You can't reach it with your emotions. You can't search for it. Just think about it. The search itself will be stirrings. It will be movements, vexation. It's not, you, know, you, uh, you can't get it by command. You can't order it. It's like demanding love. You can't force love into existence. 
You can't force silence into existence. Not, not the silence I'm talking about. There are some concentration techniques where temporarily you get a certain silence, but it's held in place, and there's still separation, and there's still a doer, an observer. The silence that I'm talking about, it's there right now. It's not something constructed, and, but we don't have access to it because the mind is quite busy, as you know. And so if you can more and more make friends with your own mind and just let it roam about, let it say what it wants to, do what it wants to, feel what it wants to, just enjoy the show. Uh, the momentum runs itself out and you find yourself in a state of silence. Okay, uh, we're going to go over, I think, a little bit tonight. I guess every night Michael's not here, I go over. <laughs> But um, I think it's important. I don't know how much more there is to say, frankly. Um, as we get to the threshold of silence, there may be fear. There may be discomfort and awkwardness. We're not in silence yet, but maybe just some intimations. Uh, I got the idea to give this talk because a number of the questions have been people who come into interviews and say, uh, nothing's happening. And I said, what do you mean nothing's happening? And I said, nothing's happening with a little bit of disappointment. But then when I probed, I find out their mind had gotten kind of quiet. And uh, okay, it's cute, you know, it's okay, but... Uh, uh, you know, where's something? Now, that is, it's still left over from the old conditioning, unless we're doing, running, jumping, skipping, hopping, you know, uh, uh, flying, uh, driving fast, doing somersaults, I don't know, do, piling it up, carrying it away. It's not real. It's not worthwhile. And so there's not even a sense that the nothing is something. It's silence. Okay, it's the very bare beginnings of it, but it's a nice start. So there are bound to be some reaction to it because this is a new land for us. It's a new territory. It's unknown. Uh, at some point, I don't know anyone who doesn't have face some fear about it. And it's the ego that's afraid because it's thinking about, it's just imagining what that would be without it there. And it's terrifying to it because in the land of silence, there's no room for the ego because that goes when everything goes into abeyance, so does what we call the ego go into abeyance. Do you think it's going to go peacefully? Well, it can if you practice the, what we've suggested, that is, by honoring it. Again, we're not killing anything. It just goes into abeyance, and it gives us an opportunity to taste it. Now, at this point, you may taste a bit of silence, and then typically there becomes an expectation, like, what's going to happen? And then there's tension and then it collapses. It's very, very delicate and very shy. What silence loves, is silence will, will shine, will show itself if you love it. And if you're very, very patient, it likes that. If you have any designs on it, that's it, can't any of them. Some of the ones I listed, and you could probably think of others, all kinds of programs and calculations and schemes. So now let's, for the moment, assume that uh, when the fear comes up, when the awkwardness comes up, when whatever comes up, comes up, we follow the instructions and just watch it. We see, oh, look at that. There's, there's fear. It's very, very quiet, and I'm afraid of the quiet. Fine, that's just our practice. It's nothing special, because our practice now is just to be with whatever is there, and that's what's there. We keep keep moving now. Let's say we're able to accomplish that. And as we are, as we're able to do nothing, more and more, be able to do less and less till finally we just are, the silence becomes much more full-blown. Now, the word silence is a difficult word, as I mentioned, because I, you really can't describe silence. It's not possible. Anyone who tells you they can describe it uh, probably doesn't know what it is. Poets are good, good poets are good at kind of, to some degree, getting that bridge between 
language and something that's uh, the source of language. But there you are. What I, well, a few things that I'd like to say about it. Silence is an energy. Uh, it's packed with life. It's highly charged. It's not a vacuity. It's not a blank. At least what I'm talking about isn't. It's the most refined kind of energy there is. It gets more and more subtle. And packed into it is compassion and wisdom. All you could ever want. It's the inner metta. It's innate to us. When you drop into it, and I think many of us who've practiced for a while, you've had a taste of it. Uh, what I would suggest is, when that happens, allow yourself to soak in that silence. Let it operate on you. Let it work on you. Uh, typically, the mind will start thinking it should be doing something else, more valuable. I'm not talking about absorption, where you are absorbed in a particular object, which is, of course, a very useful thing to do. What I'm talking about is a much more spacious kind of silence that, that comes in the practice if you do it. It's not reserved for special people because we all have it. We're all living in it. We're living out of it. So what we have to learn, of course, is how to get there. Once we get there, how to allow ourselves to uh, fully let it work on us, let it operate on us. It has tremendous healing capacity. Tremendous healing capacity at, at all levels. Um, sometimes I think the busy mind that is obsessed with doing and getting and becoming uh, underestimates the value until it learns what, what that value is. And somehow we think that the practice is we've got to keep seeing things arising and passing away, arising and passing away, understand them, see into them. Well, it's that understanding, yes, that takes us to the silence. But what we don't understand is the silence has a major role in helping us to accomplish freedom and letting go. When you come out of silence, I know that many of you have had this feeling. Let's just make it something very, very concrete. One ancient master was asked, what is enlightenment? And the answer was, the sky is blue, the, the grass is green. Uh, surely we all know that. Children know that. Uh, but when, when the mind is bathed in silence and then it comes out, it really sees that the sky is blue and the grass is green. It's an incomparable experience. Uh, I, I've mentioned this in Cambridge a number of times. I'm not saying what I'm about to describe is some the great awakening or big enlightenment experience, but it was it was quite moving and wonderful. Uh, I had been sitting a fair amount, and I just stepped, came out of my apartment in Cambridge and was walking down the street, and I was waiting for someone. And there was a yellow cab parked there, just waiting for customers. And suddenly I looked at it, and you know what I learned? I learned that the, the reason they call a yellow cab a yellow cab is because it's yellow. <laughs> it was so yellow. It was incredible. It was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. The yellow cab. <laughs> Cambridge yellow cab. I mean, I was all teary-eyed and everything. <laughs> I'm serious. Because when the mind is uh, cleansed of all, uh, of all this, the me and mine stuff, I want this and I don't want that, and maybe if, and she said, he said, and when will they, and if, and but, and uh, life is there. Life is just incredible. It's just... You're intimate. That's part of what I meant by practices about intimacy. Suddenly, everything's like that. It's not just yell. Even a rusty beer can can be something that can be quite a contemplation. And certainly, impermanence, when the mind is very clear, everything that you see has a much more profound impact on it. The same things that you saw when the mind wasn't clear uh, just go right into something so deep that it changes you. This is a different kind of knowing. That's why clarity is what gets us free, not wanting to get free, not striving or trying to get free. Clear seeing is what frees us. Okay, so now we have, at least I've put a few things uh, into your biocomputer about some possibilities. The point is not to throw away what you're already good at and what you like, but we're imbalanced. Now, 
uh, how do you get to this silence? I don't know. My experience is limited. I've done lots of retreats, long retreats, just like what you're doing. And I also live a life that's active and full of you know, people and events. If there's a way of, of uh, tasting this stillness, which is so healing and really what the practice is about, without doing these long retreats, great. I think I'd be the first one to want to go in that direction. I haven't found it, but again, I, I'm telling you that my, I'm speaking only from my experience, that sometimes what you need is an extended period of time where you stop having responsibilities of a certain kind, as, drop as much as you can, and to just, whether it's sitting and walking, whatever the method, little by little, giving, allowing this mind to, to um, exhaust itself and run, run itself down. And so you can come to something, taste it, and then let it work on you, uh, and then come back into life. And I'd like to just finish up with that this evening. I think that's enough just to put something in your mind. I know it's in words, but maybe someday it'll be useful. The next step is silence and action. Uh, sometimes, you know, uh, we read and we think and we hear enlightenment talked about, or let's say awakened states, or all of the many valuable things that come up in Buddhist texts in a very static way. Like somehow, if we can only attain this particular level or have Ken show this particular experience, it sort of reduces life to a a moment or a few moments when a particular seeing happens and then our being gets transformed and then then what? Uh, life goes on. Whether you attain this, that or the other, it goes on. And then the challenge for us becomes not just uh, leaving that silence in some meditation hall somewhere and admittedly having the benefit of it, but living from there and acting from there. It's sometimes called in Zen, they sometimes call it no mind, or silence in action, or clear mind. Most of our actions come out of me and mine, a mind that's very noisy, very confused. The more you practice, you'll see that. But we have to act. We can't wait until we're perfect. So we make lots of decisions, affecting the world, affecting our families, affecting ourselves. We do the best we can, and we'll have to keep doing that. Uh, but a lot of mischief in the world is caused by actions that come out of this mind, minds that are uh, driven by ambition, by accumulation, by the need for fame, for money, for power. These are old, I hope not trite, terms for you because it doesn't go out of style. Every generation doesn't seem to learn from history at all. We just keep doing it now bigger and better because we have nice toys now to, to help us. Um, actions that come out of a still mind are much simpler, much more reliable, uh, much less likely to cause mischief. Um, make the world a very different place. So we have a planet uh, run by a lot of, all of us, we're, we're all part of it. Minds that are all over the place. The Dharma quest is to grow into a mind that leaves me and mine behind. The attachment to me and mine behind. Uh, what's left is clarity. Uh, silence is not a good word for it. Maybe you'll underestimate what I'm talking about. There's no word for it. But it's, uh, it's, some people call it your true nature, but it's not, a, it's not a self in the sense that some of the questions are about. That true nature is the same for all of us. And so our practice is tapping it to whatever degree, 10 seconds, 5 seconds, it's all right. And acting more and more from that clarity Knowing when we're confused, pulling over to the side of the road, not making important decisions when the mind is under the influence of me and mine or whatever, all the children of me and mine. I'd like to leave you with something from the Theravadan tradition. 
and the Zen tradition, uh, there's a real coming together on this. Supposedly an arhant, which is sort of on the way next to a Buddha, one um, um, quality that an arhant has is they're not um, caught up in, they don't feel superior to anyone, they don't feel inferior to anyone, and they don't even feel equal to anyone. In other words, they've stepped out of that whole game. Lin Chi, a very great Chinese master, said, become a true person of no rank. Become a true person of no rank. It's the same thing. It's a true person is a person who has stepped out of rank. Even equality is a game. That goes on in Cambridge all the time. We're all trying to make sure that no one thinks we're superior to, you know, we're all equal, whether it's along gender or race or age or uh, degrees or now we're all obsessed with making sure that no one thinks that we're any better than anyone else. Uh, but it's just another oscillation or variation in a preoccupation with who, who am I in this, in this status world? So it's still me or mine. Just so we don't get caught in unrealistic, uh, especially for the new people. When Lin Chi says, become a true person of no rank, I'm pretty sure what he means. I mean, he's not around anymore, but uh, you could be chairman of the board of the most prosperous, powerful corporation in the world. That would be okay. You see, it's not about what you're doing. It's not your function. It's inner. What we're talking about is inner. So if you carry out your function as chairman of what's a powerful corporation, anyone? Give me one, I forgot. Well, IBM, okay. Uh, and if you've stepped out of superior, inferior, and equal, uh, hopefully you do carry out your function well, but you're not uh, contaminated by all the status stuff that we build on top of the function. Then again, you could be a janitor and feel totally worthwhile uh, if you've stepped out of this because it, it's out of that whole game. It's not about that because what we're tapping is where we're intrinsically worthwhile. Even though our appearance is different, our function is different, our money may be different, uh, it's a place in all of us, this is what the teachings are saying, where we no longer have to beg people to approve of us, to show in some way that we're okay. Whether it's by money, by uh, love, by fame, whatever it is, uh, it's a place that is intrinsically okay. Uh, and there's no doubt about it. So that we're able to act and live from that place, which I think is, a, is a, sounds pretty good to me. Anyway, that's our journey has a little bit to do with this, a lot to do with it. Um, I don't think you can hanker after being a true person of no rank because then there it goes again. But I think what you can do is start becoming more sensitive to how you, uh, in moments, how you're in that. You're in, you're in samsara. Samsara is not some special place. It's how you are relating to where you are. And when you see that you've gotten caught up in something, you can feel it. You can see it. And so, the liberation, as, as I see it, a lot of our practice is learning how to be free. Uh, and a lot of the learning how to be free comes from seeing slavery. We see ways in which we are enslaved and through the power of seeing, clear seeing, uh, the change, uh, chains are, are melted. Sometimes there are very deep insights. Most of it you know, is gradual, a little here, a little there. Uh, we become a little bit more human, a little bit kinder, a little bit freer.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.